Obadiah. How many of you have never heard a series on Obadiah in a Sunday morning service in your life? Never heard one? Yeah, exactly. Obadiah is not a very famous person. It's not a very famous name. I had some people come to me and they said, uh, we read Obadiah for the first time this week. I had a guy come and say, I read Obadiah this week and I have no idea what you're going to talk about this morning. I said, guess what? Neither do I. Um, it is a book that probably very few of us are familiar with. It's um, an interesting book of the Bible. It is in the Old Testament. I can tell you I've never had someone come and say, you know, my life was going down the wrong path. I was making such wrong decisions. And then I read Obadiah. I've never, heard, I've never had someone come and say, you know, my life versus Obadiah verse 8. It's just, it's never happened. It's not a popular book. Sometimes, sometimes we get this idea, because it's not well-known, maybe it's not very practical. Maybe it's not very significant. Or worse yet, maybe it's not very powerful. And I think we're going to understand as we go through this together, that's just not the case with this book of the Bible. And I just can't wait to open it up with you. So I'm going to give you a head start in finding the book of Obadiah in your Bible. If you're looking for it, it's right after the book of Amos. That should make it really simple for you. <laughs> so get a jump start in there, and uh, if you need, there's a table of contents. If you're doing this on your phone or your iPad or something like that, it would be a little bit easier. Just punch in Obadiah, and bam, there it's going to be. It should be a lot easier for you. So here we go, some facts about Obadiah. Um, you know, other than biblical characters with that name, and there's about maybe five other people in the Bible named Obadiah, uh, it's not a very popular name. I was just thinking this week, how many people do I know named Obadiah, and I thought of them all, none uh, so I looked up some stuff. Here's, here's some stats on Obadiah. There are three books with characters named Obadiah. There's one, and I did know this one. There's one character, um, a villain in Iron Man, Obadiah Stain. And I'm seeing a lot of adults saying, what? Okay, never mind about that one. We actually had two U.S. senators named Obadiah. Uh, one from Maine and one from New York. Who would have thought that? We have um, a potential, this might be a stretch, okay? Because short for Obadiah is Obi. Are you going there with me right now? <laughs> and I got so curious, so I looked it up online. Like, really, could Obi-Wan Kenobi? have been named Obadiah, and I searched, and there are some things Google does not know. <laughs> but I feel better thinking it just might have been Obadiah Juan Kenobi. <laughs> Anyways, it is not a popular name. <clears throat> Poor Obadiah, on the ranking of most popular names in the United States of America, ranks 812th. 
And there was a poll when given people the choice between the names Zebediah and Obadiah. 70% chose Zebediah. I have no idea where the poll was taking. I assume maybe in Kentucky or something like that. Who would give people choices like that? Anyways, never mind. So here's, you have your study guide. Let's work through it together. So flip on the back and um, in your East Bay Weekly, let's work through some of this together. Obadiah is one of the minor prophets. Now there's two sections of prophets in the Old Testament. And and I know... um, uh, maybe, maybe we've wondered about this, maybe you haven't. Let me just give you a little quick history. So in the, in the Old Testament, there's the minor prophets and there's the major prophets. Now, the minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So those are the minor prophets. There's 12 of them, actually in the Hebrew Bible, all 12 minor prophets were collected into one book called the Trey Asar, which is the 12. So that helps us, that's how they just grabbed them, lumped them all together into the 12, the minor prophets. And then there's the major prophets, and the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I just want to throw out a little trivia thing. You ever wonder why are they called the major prophets and the minor prophets? So I'm going to answer that for you this morning. In our culture, if you think of baseball, you think there's the major league, and then there's the minor league, and you think the minor league is made up of the guys. They just weren't quite good enough. They were pretty good, but they just couldn't make it in the big leagues, so they're down in the minor leagues. That's kind of the thought that we have today. Well, I want to just clear up the whole conception, the difference between the majors and the minors in the Old Testament biblically. And here's all it is. It's actually pretty simple. The whole clarification of major and minor in regards to the prophets in the Old Testament, those categories were given in the late 4th century AD during um, Augustine's time. And, And in the theological circles, they call them that. And here's the whole reason. It's very simple. Here's what it is. The major prophets were longer books of the Bible, normally about 40 to 50 chapters. The minor prophets were the small ones, between one and about six or seven chapters. And so it just meant big and small. That's all it meant. No implications as far as their significance or importance Big and small, and now you all are let down like, I thought it would be bigger than that. No, that's just all it is. Major, big, minor, small. All done. Okay. No extra charge for that, by the way. Um, Obadiah is not only one of the minor prophets. Obadiah means this, and these are your blanks there. It means slave or worshiper of Yahweh slave or a servant or worshiper of Yahweh, and uh, his job description was embedded in his name. And this is what Obadiah was. He was a more wealthy prophet to the nation of Israel, and his job it was to do and say whatever Yahweh, whatever God told him to do or say to his people of Israel. 
Now, essentially, this book, and here's the different thing. He's a prophet to Israel. In this book, though, he's not talking to Israel. He's talking to Edom. And I know this may also be some unfamiliar territory, so let's walk through it really quick, and then we're going to get to um, some of the meatier and enjoyable parts here of this. Let me just give this, um, these things. Edomites, these are the people that Obadiah was talking to in this book, this one-chapter book. Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Israelites are the descendants of Jacob. Now, uh, maybe the names Jacob and Esau are familiar to you. Maybe not. Here's who they were. They were twins in the Bible. They were not identical twins. Uh, They were born to Isaac and Rebekah. And these twins couldn't be any more different than what they were. Esau was the oldest twin, and the Bible talks about him being hairy and a reddish hair. And that he was more the outdoor, the rugged, the hunter. The Bible talked about him bringing in game and cooking it up and all of this. You know, he was the man's man. He was probably more his dad's boy and getting out there and doing those outdoor things. Jacob was not at all like Esau. Jacob was very smooth-skinned. He was more indoors. He probably connected with mom a little bit more. He was very astute and intelligent. And there was, there was a little friction going on. That friction didn't start in childhood. Let me tell you where it started. It started in mom's belly. And the Bible made a prediction, and it came completely true. As Esau was coming out first, this hand reached out to grab Esau's heel. And I have no idea what that must have been like for mom. Basically saying, you're not going to be the first one. I'm going to be the first one. And that was just the beginning. And in fact, this feud went through to the point where Jacob tricked his dad into giving him the rights of being the firstborn and at the same time had his brother in a vulnerable position where he got this birthright and so all of the blessing of the firstborn rested on Jacob as a pronouncement of biblical prophecy. And this feud went back and forth between Jacob and Esau all the way through their growing up years, through their adulthood, and then they died, and then their families made families. And so Jacob's family was Israel. Esau's family was Edom. So now after I've gone through all of this history the last 10 minutes or so, we all together? Let me just quiz you. Jacob's family was? Esau's family was? Okay. You guys are doing okay here this morning. Edom hated Israel. Hated them. Edom went against Moses' request to pass through their land. 
would not let them through. They opposed King Saul of Israel. Edom fought against David. They opposed King Solomon and Jehoshaphat and rebelled against Jehoram. And the Edomites were a constant thorn in the flesh to Israel all the way through. And they were a perpetual obstacle to Israel's advancement, and Israel just could not shake them. And here's the other thing. Besides hating Israel, they felt they were indestructible. And I'm going to show you why in just a moment. They felt like no one could touch them. I'm going to tell you this, and then you're going to see it in our bumper video. Here's why they felt they couldn't be touched. At the time of this writing of Obadiah, the Edomites had settled into Mount Seir. And this was a huge mountainous region south of the Dead Sea. And the rock city, and here's a neat name to remember, the rock city of Petra was their capital city. And I don't know if you know it, but Petra, in the language of the Bible, anyone know Petra means, it means rock. Wait till you see some of these pictures. You will see it is rock. And so from the mountainous region behind them, it was so impassable. And you could see people coming from miles and miles and miles away. There was no way to be snuck up on. And then to the front of the city, there was this channel through this huge mountainous region and this channel that was, that was narrow. And everyone had to pass through that channel in order to come into the city. And so it was very easy to defend. And so the Edomites were like, hey, you try to come over those mountains. Number one, you're just not going to make it. Number two, we can see you come from a mile away and we'll just kill you. And then if you try to come into the city through this little channel that went through the rock, we'll kill you there. And so they really felt no one can touch us. No one's going to be able to handle us. We pretty much are indestructible. I want you to see this video. This is going to give you an idea of what those things are. And when you see this channel, it's called the Sid, and it opens up right to the treasury in the land of Eden, and it is this massive, phenomenal building built into the rock there in Petra. Check out the video, would you? something just to think of the work that went into that and they showed that they had money they showed that they were very well fortified in their city they showed that they were feeling indestructible although Edom was well protected let me tell you about a people that weren't well protected Israel and at the time that Obadiah was written Israel was captured. It's in question whether it was by the Philistines or the Babylonians. And not only were they captured and they were 
under this captivity, guess who really loved the fact that Israel went down? The Edomites. Get your hand out. I want you to see a couple things with me this morning. Have you found Obadiah yet? If you haven't, come back next Sunday and, um, and we'll try again, okay? Obadiah, there's only one chapter. Would you look down at verse 10? Israel was captured. You will see they'll talk about Israel here by the name of their patriarch, Jacob. Going back to this tension between Jacob and Esau. So here we go. Israel was captured. And this is Edom's response starting in verse 10. And it's in this oracle from Obadiah against Edom because of their response. Listen to what they did. It says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, that's Israel, you, Edom, will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Here were their actions. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, that's Jacob or Israel's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Here's another thing they did, verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. Verse 14 you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Let's fill in the blanks here for us so we understand what's going on. This is what happened. Israel was captured. Here's your blanks there for your study guide. Edom celebrated and participated in Israel's capture. When Israel was grabbed, this was party time, folks. They loved every moment of it, and they did these four things. They stood around during the invasion. They did nothing to help them. They were completely pulling back, supposedly neutral. We're going to find out that that was not the case. And they let all of this happen without any intervention. They celebrated the capture and killing of Israel's sons. This was a point of pleasure for them to see Israel's sons brought down. Not only did they do that, then it mentions they went into the city, they went into Jerusalem, they went into Israel, and they also plundered their wealth. While Israel was down, while they were being kicked, they went in and added a couple extra kicks, and they grabbed their wealth and they pulled it away for themselves. And then when Israel's people tried to escape, they would not let them, verse 14, they did not let them get past they either personally cut them down or they grabbed people and then they handed them back to their captors. That's what Edom did. Now probably no one here can fully identify with this extreme type of situation. 
Israel was in a catastrophic scenario. That thankfully, probably we can't fully experience. Interestingly enough, um, the hatred of Israel continues today. Did you know that? If you didn't know it, then just turn on the news. And you're going to see that our world is growing increasingly unfavorable toward Israel. And Jesus wasn't joking when he told his disciples, all who want to live right will endure persecution. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy. Probably none of us have experienced this, but probably all of us have experienced something. I'm going to tell you a story, probably one of my biggest moments of... Um, feeling somewhat like this. Here's how it went. I had a man come to me a number of years ago and he was asking for help because his wife left him and was with another man. And he wanted to win his wife back and, and so I, I told him I would help him. I met with him. I counseled with him. And I was encouraging him to do a, a number of different things in regards to his wife to try to woo her back. And wouldn't you know it, after about four weeks, he gave me a call and he said, Brian, you will never, ever believe who is back in my house. And he was so excited. And he even put her on the phone and, and he says, this is who we've been talking about. And they were just thrilled and I could tell that God was rekindling their relationship and bringing them back together. And I just did this private little party, like, woo, this is great when you see God do stuff like that. And I hung up the phone, and, and I was just so thankful. And wouldn't you know it, later on in the day, I got an email from the man that she was having the affair with. And are you ready for this? It was one of my neighbors. And he was furious. Absolutely furious. He was out of the area at the time. The email seemed extremely threatening. And I started to get really nervous for my family. And I remember pulling the leaders of our church together and, and, and some other people knew this guy and they're like, we have no idea what could happen. They said, there is a volatility there and his email showed it and they said, we have no idea. And they said, Pastor, we think you need to grab your family and go into hiding. And, um, and that we did. We actually owned a couple horses at the time. People from church came by, loaded up the horses, took them to their farm. We loaded up our kids. We grabbed as much of our stuff as we could. We put our two dogs in the minivan and off we were. And the place that they suggested we go was a little Bible camp by us called Bayuka, out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of like Pleasant Valley, you know, uh, camp or it'd be, you know, somewhat like our Lake Ann camp here. And let me tell you, if, if there's a place you want to go for a witness protection program, well, no one will ever know who you are. You go to Bible camp. That's where you go. No one has any idea who you are or what's going on. It was just after season, 
And they said, you may help yourself to anything in the refrigerator. And I remember going there and opening up the refrigerator. All they had was this huge carton of corn dogs. <laughs> and so for four days, we ate corn dogs. That's all we ate. But I remember the feeling of someone may want to take us out. And after four days and we thought things had blown over, we went home, and I'll never forget the time I was outside. I was in the yard. The kids are playing around. And his car's coming up the driveway. And I didn't see it, but my first inclination that he was coming was all of our kids start, Wah! you know, they start running, and they run into the house, and I turn around, and I'm like, oh, my. And I, what's going to happen now? And because I know I'm going to have 500 people ask me later how it ended up, I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, he got out of the car. I was praying. And he walked over to me. He goes, I'm sorry. I went, ah. Oh. And wouldn't you know, we actually became friends. And um, God really protected us in that. I know some of the feeling. Probably we all can identify some way with mistreatment. I don't want to pick a scab in your life this morning, but would you listen to some of these? Maybe you connect with them. Maybe you've been mistreated or taken advantage of financially. Maybe you've loaned someone money or maybe even a family member and you've never gotten it back or then they've disputed what you should have gotten. Maybe you have been taken advantage of physically. I'm sure if we all closed our eyes, there would be a large number of people who have been physically mishandled, mistreated, and abused in this room, and we would be staggered probably to find out the extent of that. Probably even more staggering and emotionally mind-blowing would be if we really understood the number of people who have been taken advantage of sexually. Emotionally. I think every one of us can identify one way or another with mistreatment. And maybe you put your all out there. Maybe you, in your marriage or in a relationship, you were so vulnerable in trusting someone else and they used that vulnerability against you. And maybe it was your personal information that they felt free to share with others. Maybe it was your position and they exploited that for their own personal gain. But there's so many ways that mistreatment can happen in our lives. And, and Israel was in a unique position that here in their situation, in their vulnerability, in their hurt and in their pain, 
And here their brother, okay, this is their brother who not only mocks and laughs and celebrates their pain and mistreatment, but they step in and take advantage of it and grab things for themselves. And for you folks, and for me, for all of us that have been through types of situations where we have been taken advantage of or mistreated or misrepresented and in our vulnerability have been exploited like Israel, I just want us to sense the very first lesson of the book of Obadiah. And here's what it is. And I hope that this speaks something to your heart, folks. The first lesson of the book of Obadiah for all of us is this, and this is the main point of today. This is just what I want to give us and what we're going to finish up with in our descent here this morning. And this is what it is, folks. Let it breathe life and health into your heart this morning. And this is what it is. God loves and rescues his kids God loves and rescues his kids. Pour that over your problem for a moment, would you? Whatever it is, just let it come over you like a rain that drenches every portion of you. God loves you. God rescues from the worst situations. And he does this because we are his kids. We're his children. And I want to go one step further with you, even to the point where it might make you feel uncomfortable, because some of us will say in this room right now, Pastor, I'm one of the kids that have screwed up. I put myself in this position. I've done things that people said, don't do it because it's going to go bad. And I did it anyways. And then when I was in that position, someone took advantage of me. And, and I know how I felt about people like that. So let me just open up my mind. And maybe you've heard about this before. You see someone, you say, don't do that. It's going to go really bad, and then they go and they do it, and it turns out really bad, and then someone takes advantage of them, and guess what goes through my mind? And don't look at me with shock and awe, because I know it goes through your mind too, okay? That's what they had coming to them. Yeah. I tried to warn them, and they went ahead and did it, and someone took advantage of them. Yep. Sorry, buddy. You make your bed, and you, Yeah. What you get coming? Can I flip this coin a little bit? I want to tell you that God loves and rescues his kids. And then here's that next line. Even his kids that are being disciplined. What? God loves and rescues his kids, even his kids that are being disciplined. I just want to tell you there's one important thing I've left out here this morning. I mentioned Israel was captured. I, I want to tell you why. Because they had left God. Israel left God. In their cycle of 
disobedience and all of these things that went on, Israel walked away from God. And their punishment was this other country invading them and capturing them. That was their punishment from God. So God's punishing them for their disobedience, and then along comes Edom and laughs about it and then plunders their wealth. And guess who comes to their aid? The very God that is disciplining them. So look at verse 1 down through verse 10. I just, I just want you to know, this is what God says to Edom through the prophet Obadiah. So verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, let us go against her for battle. God's putting it out to him. You look out, people. We are coming after you. Verse 2, see, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Notice some of the imagery here. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Check out this phrase, you who lived in the cleft of the rock. And make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, make your nest among the stars. From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And in that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Eden, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Folks, here's the big lesson. God loves his kids. And let me give this word to you unconditionally. And if that ain't good news, I don't know what is. We are in a position where we need unconditional love. If God's love were conditional toward me, I'd be in deep trouble, but God in his mercy, even when I've been wrong and bad, and even when he's disciplining, still comes to my rescue of injustice. I don't know if you ever have any stories of that kind of a thing. I remember one time my brother and I were playing. I can't remember the whole situation, but I think he got too rough, and he did something, and, uh, and he hurt me. And my dad's like, get in here to him. And he takes him in the room, and I could hear my dad saying something. And this was back in the day when some of the discipline was a little 
difficult to endure on our backside, if you know what I'm saying. And I saw my brother go in there, and I'm like, (laughs) and I'm laughing at him, Scott, you're going to get it, man. This is great, you know. And then I hear my dad says, Brian, get in here too. I'm like, oh boy. (laughs) And we both got it. Him for doing the wrong and me for laughing about him getting punished. I was kind of like Edom back then. How do you feel when someone disciplines your kid? Huh? Hey, just want you to know I took the liberty to discipline your kid because they were doing something wrong. Oh, you probably go, oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. You'd be like, no, no, no. You don't touch my kid. And how about I take the liberty to discipline you for disciplining my kid? You know, you get your hands. They're my kid. You don't touch them. And this is the way God was. Hey, I can discipline them. You can't. And so God comes to the beautiful aid of Israel in this time and in this calamity, and I want to give you a few verses, just let these sink in. Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And I like this passage, even in light of Edom and Petra. God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. Or check out Psalm 57, 1 to 3. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, Rebuking those who hotly pursue me, God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. Psalm 124, 1 to 5. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive with their anger, flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. And here's the last one, maybe a familiar verse to some in Isaiah Chapter 41, verse 10. In fact, you know what? We we don't read too often together. This is such a beautiful verse. Would you just read it with me? So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteousness. Yeah. God's protection for his own. I know that we know that God loves us and rescues his kids, but you know what? Um, There's some times that we doubt it. I've been there. There's some times when I'm in something and I'm like, you know what? I don't know if, is God really going to come through? Does he still love me? Does he even know? And I, I want to give you, these are some things that happen when we question God's justice. These, these are not going to pop up on the screen. I just want to give you some quickies. How do we know if 
I'm going through something, and if I'm really questioning that God cares, I, I wrote down a few things. Here's number one. We complain. We complain. Think about it. When we complain, who are we complaining to? You know, if you're complaining about the weather, oh, this weather is horrible. This is ridiculous. Who are you complaining to? Like, not to the weatherman, you know. It's to God. And so in our circumstances, when we question if God really loves us or cares, we complain. Here's probably the biggest one. We enact revenge. Often we want to get others back because I don't think God will. Or it won't be soon enough. Or maybe it won't be harsh enough. So I, as a servant of the Lord, want to do his bidding and help others realize that they have done injustice to me. It's God's job. Here's number three. Sometimes we develop resentment toward God. Been there. Sometimes we get upset with God. I have been in spots where I have been spiritually silent. You know what? I'm, I'm not, nope, I'm not praying. I'm not reading my scripture. You know what? I don't even know about church. I don't know about any of this stuff. And we develop resentment toward him. We start taking things out on him. We start justifying, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing because I don't think God cares anymore. Resentment toward God. Number four, sometimes we can lose hope and despair. Some people throw in the towel. I don't think this will ever change. I don't think my life will ever be different. And you give up hope. And then last, um, sometimes we struggle with the thought of God's grace to our enemy. We don't even want to think about what if God saved our enemy and their life completely turned around. Some of us think, that would be horrible. I want God to get them, not rescue them. And we know we're struggling with the thought of justice and with God's care when we struggle with the idea of his grace to our enemy. So I want to give these things to you and then we're going to finish up. What to do when we feel God is not just? Four things. This will be on your screen here to help us out with our blanks. What to do when we feel God is not just? We feel he doesn't love us. We feel he doesn't care. Here's number one. Remember his mercy to us. Think of what he's done. He's come through in the past, folks. Rehearse his provision and the many examples of his love toward us. The old song I remember as a kid was this um, one hymn called Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings and says, see what God has done. It's this whole, you know, sometimes when we get immersed in our problem, that's all we can think about, and we're saturated with our situation, 
And sometimes it's good to pull ourselves up out of that and say, you know what? God's helped in the past and rehearse that and remind ourselves he's good. Here's number two. Relinquish the right to retaliate. Relinquish your right to retaliate. That's God's job. It's not our job. Now, I just will admit for a moment, it does feel good, though, doesn't it? It's not right. And sometimes we'll be unjust when we step in. And the Bible says, leave that to God. Vengeance is mine. He says, I will take care of it. And he says, in fact, for yourself, why don't you do good to your enemy? Why don't you pray for them? Why don't you care for them? Overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil. Give it to God. Number four, elevate your confidence in him. If anyone can handle this and handle it right, it is God. The greater our confidence in him, the less our need to control the situation. The greater our confidence in him, the less our preoccupation with what has happened. And the more we elevate our confidence in him, this last thing can happen, and here's what it is. Take a load off. Let that burden roll, my friend. You don't have to carry those weights. And in fact, don't try to carry weights only intended for God to carry God did not intend for you to shoulder these things all on your own. It is not possible to do it and find peace in your trouble. I saw this one on Facebook this week. I loved it. Here you go. I think it's impossible. I'm going through a tough situation. It's impossible to have peace. Well, listen to these. Daniel slept in a lion's den. Peter slept in a prison. Jesus slept in a storm. And then they finish, no matter your circumstance, when you trust God, you can take a nap. Some of you have been trusting God during my message. <laughs> what spiritual people we have here this morning. Take a load off, folks. We got two more messages in this one chapter book of the Bible. And today I really want us to think about the reality. Again, God loves you. Even if you've been bad, God still loves you. Even if you're far from him, God still loves you. And he wants to rescue you. I want you to think about the reality if you're in a bind right now. There's only one person to trust in. And that's God.
Can we get personal for a second? In fact, when we get personal, would you just, I just don't want us to be distracted. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? I just want to get personal with you. I want you to think inside. What's your confidence level in God? Have you caught yourself questioning his love or his justice in your situation? Maybe the timing's not going right. Maybe you feel it's more significant. Maybe you've been developing resentment toward God or harboring bitterness toward others. Can I encourage you? Can we take a load off? Can we just trust God? Can we have confidence in Him and not let this stuff overtake us and overwhelm us and preoccupy our minds and our actions? And I have the feeling there's a bunch of us that need to do some quick business with God this morning. Some here that need to apologize to Him. some that need to elevate their trust in him. And in the silence, I would like you to have a moment of silent prayer and connection to God. And tell him about your confidence, your trust. Ask him for help to relinquish these things that weigh you down, knowing he'll come to your rescue. And if you're disobedient, He still loves you. Come back to him. Father, no one loves like you. No one rescues us like you. And God, there's some people here that need some rescuing. I pray on their behalf, Lord. Help us collectively to take a load off and really give you the right to handle things how you deem best. And God, may you find us as a church family truly trusting you for all of this. We know you don't mess things up. We trust you to do things right. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.